continues his, or really continues his public ministry after he calls his first disciples. And in verse 21 of Mark 1, we read these words. And they, Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, in the previous verses that we looked at last week, we saw what Jesus did as he inaugurated his public ministry as he comes in preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And then he calls him to himself four men. He calls uh, Simon and Andrew and he calls James and John. He says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we said last week what that meant was that Jesus would make them into the kind of people that he would use as instruments to rescue people out of darkness and bring them into light, to bring people from despair to hope and from death to life, that he would make them into those kinds of people. And then Jesus, on the heels of calling those first disciples, He begins to do that very thing. He begins to bring men and women out of the, this, the kingdom of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and into the light. Out of death and into life. Out of despair and into hope. And He does so by exercising His authority. Because what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus has ultimate authority over all things. That He rules and reigns over all. We saw at the very beginning of Mark's Gospel that when Jesus is introduced, He's introduced as the Creator King, as the Christ, as the Lord of the Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D, the One who spoke all things into existence, through whom all things were made, and that He rules and reigns over everything. So what Jesus is not, is He's not some regional God who has jurisdiction over His little corner of the world. But what Jesus is, is the Creator King of all the universe. That He rules over all things, has authority over all things. And because of that, listen church, there's two things this morning I want to tell you that we ought to do because of who Jesus is as the one who has authority over all things. And the first one is this, is that we ought to trust Jesus to teach us. We ought to trust Him to teach us. 
See, Jesus in the text that we look at today, he teaches as one with authority. See, when Jesus travels to Capernaum, he immediately enters the synagogue, which is where the Jewish people would have been gathered for the teaching of the rabbis. And whenever Jesus begins to open his mouth and teach, we're not told what he teaches, we're told how he teaches. Right? Jesus doesn't, we're not told the content of what he delivers, but we're told that whenever the people hear him in verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, the word authority in this text is a key word throughout this section of Mark's gospel. In fact, we're going to pick up on it again next week, and maybe even the week after that, as we work through this early section of Mark. But it describes someone who has the mental ability or the strength or the power in and of themselves to exercise that in what they do. So in other words, right, when it says that he taught as one with authority or one with power, they taught not as the scribes did. See, the scribes had derived authority. They only had authority on the basis of what the content that they were teaching as it was given to them from the, 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 the Old Testament canon, as they taught the Old Testament. But Jesus had authority inherent in Himself because of who He was. And He taught with that power and He taught with that authority. He demonstrated that in and of Himself. You can imagine as he teaches, people are captivated and stimulated by the things that he's saying. In fact, they are astonished at his teaching. They say this, a new, what is this? A new teaching. A new teaching. We haven't heard this before in the way that Jesus is delivering what he's saying and what he is saying. Listen, and, and, and so as a result of that, we can trust him to teach us. These people were drawn to him because of who he was and how he taught so there's two things about this. Jesus' teaching is incredibly intellectually stimulating, first of all. Now listen, you never trust someone and follow someone that you don't believe to be competent to lead you, do you? Right? Yeah, if you do, then you find yourself in a very difficult position. <laughs> yeah, right? Because whenever you do, listen, let me, give you, let me break it down for you this way. Whenever you, tr- you would never trust somebody, like if you were looking for a personal trainer, all right? And you put out an ad on Facebook saying, hey, I need someone, like, I, I want to shed 15 pounds, right? I just want to drop some 15. I'm looking for someone to help me with that. And somebody, you, somebody posted an ad, you connected to them, and they showed up at the gym the first day, and they're 200 pounds overweight, carrying a bag of Snickers bars, and they're like, hey, I'm here, let's get to work, right? You wouldn't trust them to train you physically because of the condition that their body is in, Right? In the same way, you wouldn't, hopefully wouldn't trust a mechanic to repair your car that doesn't have a little grease under his fingers, right? They've done some work. They know how to get under the hood and do some stuff. You wouldn't take vocal lessons from somebody whose pitch is sharp as a straight razor, okay? You wouldn't trust them to teach you how to use that instrument and find particular notes. You know, the folks who are one and done on American Idol because they just can't sing. You wouldn't trust them to give you vocal lessons, You wouldn't hire me to teach your child, tutor them in math. That would be a disaster. Okay? I'd get them to, like, how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Simple numbers. Beyond that, I am useless. I'm useless, right? See, we don't trust, we don't follow people that we believe and deem to be incompetent to lead us in particular areas of expertise. And Jesus, listen... Jesus is the most wise, brilliant, 
teacher to ever live. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, our commitment to Jesus can stand on other foundation than the recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It's not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe them to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. And can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were if he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. Jesus is brilliant. His teaching stimulates, it draws, it captivates us with wonder. But listen, there are some people who are still living in confusion because they're trusting someone else to teach them other than Jesus. So they're absolutely confused. Listen, no matter, and here's, a, here's who I think most people, most modern American people are trusting to teach and guide them, to counsel them through the matters of life that matter most. And it's their own heart. It's their own heart, how they feel in a particular moment. Regardless of what is true about real life. See, no matter how much information or education we have received, we are feeling beings, if not as much as thinking beings. So what, all, what we want, listen, often wins over what we know. I want, want an example of that. Look at the massive amounts of consumer debt in our culture. Like What we want trumps what we know. We know it would be healthy not to take out a fifth credit card and max it out. But what we want drives us, compels us. See, the main thing that keeps us from trusting Jesus to teach us is the underlying belief that our desires are superior to God's design. That what we want wins out over what He wills in our lives. So, that's why people are living in confusion. What we must learn to do is to look square in the face of this, our desires, and rather than giving full vent to them, we've got to learn to preach to ourselves, right? And remind ourselves that if we give full vent to our desires, it will end in bondage, restriction, and destruction. But the way of Jesus, as he teaches us, will end in freedom, fullness, and flourishing for our lives. He has the best information on everything, church. Trust him to teach you. But not only is that teaching intellectually stimulating, but listen, it's also personally transforming. Listen, I I want you to consider something. When the authoritative teaching of Jesus gets a hold of your life, it not only creates curiosity, right? But it changes conduct. Okay? It's not only intellectually stimulating, but it's personally transforming. When we bring our lives under the authority of Jesus... And what he teaches. Listen, when the teaching of Jesus on what it truly means to be defiled in Mark chapter 7 takes a hold of your life. I remember when he says there, like the, what truly defiles a person isn't whether or not they've washed their hands and what they're eating, what they're eating with unclean hands, but it's what comes out of the heart, he says. Out of the heart comes all that defiles a person. 
See, whenever that takes root in your life, then you become the kind of person who doesn't merely judge other people on the basis of their external appearance, but you assess other people on the basis of what's coming out of their heart. See, when the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 9 takes hold in your life about, the, about what power looks like and how it's to be leveraged and used, then you become the kind of person who's transformed into the servant of all. That you lay your wants aside for the needs of others. When the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 10 begins to take hold in your life, you become the teaching on divorce in Mark chapter 10, you become fiercely loyal and ferociously forgiving in your marriage because you fight for it and you cling to it. When the teaching of Jesus on wealth in Mark chapter 10 takes hold of your life, you become willing to leave houses and possessions, cars and and, and, and vacation homes and the false security of finances and 401ks to lead you wherever he would take you by be, be happily and generously and joyfully leveraging all things for the advancement of his kingdom. See, we're not just talking about ideas. We're talking about the teaching of Jesus actually transforming and changing the way that we live. It is intellectually stimulating and people are captivated by it, but it's also personally transforming and it creates change when you trust Him to teach you. Let me ask you, church, who are you trusting to teach you? Somebody's teaching you. Somebody's teaching me. Somebody's counseling me. Somebody's guiding me. Who are you looking to as a position of authority in your life, saying teach, instruct, guide, counsel, because you have the best information on all things. Because He has ultimate authority, we can trust Him to teach us. But listen also, secondly, because He has ultimate authority, we can defer to Jesus for deliverance. We can defer to Him for deliverance. Listen, there's two instances of deliverance in the text that we've just read together. The first one is in verses 23 to 28. We find Jesus casting out an unclean spirit in the synagogue as He teaches. And then in verses 22 to 23, His popularity and fame begin to rise as He cast out the demon or the unclean spirit in the synagogue. He comes into Simon Peter's home and he finds his mother-in-law ill with a fever. He touches her hand, raises her up, and she's healed. And by that evening, like his fame had spread throughout the countryside and people are bringing all of their sick, all of their infirmed, all of their diseased, and all of the oppressed to Jesus. And he begins to heal and deliver them. But listen, I want you to notice something. When Jesus casts out the unclean spirit... In verse 25, he doesn't consult a book of spells. He's not looking going, where's that one, right, for this particular scenario. He doesn't recite some long incantation, okay? He doesn't go through some extended ritual or wave a magic wand. He merely commands the demon to be silent and come out. That's authority, church. That's authority that Jesus has. To deliver us from everything that would oppress us. Now listen, the unclean spirit in, verses, in those verses, I want you to consider what this is with me this morning. It's an infectious and invasive spiritual force of evil. Now listen, the word uncleanness, when it shows up in the Bible, oftentimes in the Old Testament, it refers to ceremonial uncleanness in the Levitical law. 
And so there were things that if you came into contact with, like a dead body or a discharge of blood or other things that were considered and deemed ceremonially unclean, you would become unclean and unfit to go in to worship. And so you had to go through a ritual of cleansing. And anybody that you came into contact with before you were cleansed, ultimately that uncleanliness was transferred onto them because it was an infectious kind of invasiveness that took place. And so this unclean spirit here in Mark chapter 1, listen, it is an infectious and invasive spiritual force that needs to be cleansed. And one of the things that the early Christians understood was that these unclean spirits, listen, this is it's getting good. Okay? They were not some disembodied beings floating around, creating evil out of nothing. But what they were are spiritual beings that needed a host. And what they did was amplified and aggravated what was already present. They amplified and aggravated what was already present. So they would amplify and aggravate the fears, the selfishness, the insecurities, the pride that were already present in the person. As a result, they were contaminating and crippling as they possessed individuals and had the capacity to spread, take over, dominate, and oppress in the life of a person who yielded to them. This is the best illustration I can give you of this is from the Lord of the Rings. All right, one of the, one of the so-called characters that we often don't think of in that trilogy is the ring itself. Right, but the ring that, is, that, 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 that really the whole thing Three books and movies revolve around the quest around this ring. And the ring has the power in the, in the story to control and distort all the desires of every creature that comes into contact with it. See, one of the most fascinating aspects of the stories is this ring. And as you work your way through the stories, you discover the ring has a distorting and perverting effect. It takes good things and it breaks them down. It takes things that are whole and makes them into shadows or shells of them former selves. So for instance, it takes elves and turns them into orcs. It takes the kings of men and turns them into ringwraiths. It takes Smeagol, the hobbit, and turns them into Gollum. See, the ring takes good things and makes it a dominating or enslaving influence in the life of the individual. Something that has the potential to be noble and honorable in life is turned into something that is abusive and evil. It takes a noble aspiration or dream or hope and makes it into something over which we would obsess. That we must have. And now it's something that has control over us. Something that reigns with authority in our lives. See, Smeagol's love for the beauty and preciousness of the ring makes him into Gollum and he becomes an emaciated skeleton of what he once was as he's consumed by the ring. Boromir, one of the other characters, his patriotism and love for country becomes a lust for power and domination and makes him into a shell of the noble man that he once was. Even Frodo, good Frodo, Frodo's willingness to serve and accommodate the needs of others Take upon himself their burdens. The ring turns him into an utterly and indulgently self-pitying version of himself. Which is why even at the very end of the story, as he's there at the, the heart of, of the mountain to cast the ring into the fire, he still refuses assistance from his very best friend Sam. The kings of men 
Those who were to rule over kingdoms, govern, bring order and peace to the kingdoms they oversaw. They were devoured by their lust for power and become wraiths. They're weightless, hollow, shadows of their former selves. See, the essence of sin, church, is when we acknowledge any other authority and yield our lives to the control of any other Lord. Listen, these unclean, this unclean spirit was contaminating. It was corrosive. It was invasive. It spread. And it amplified and aggravated even good things that could be used for aspirations of nobility and things that would be honorable. And it would twist and pervert and distort them into something that was destructive and would destroy. Listen, every other source of authority will harm and ultimately destroy you. Only the authority of Jesus is able to heal and to deliver you. And some people, listen, they live in bondage for decades because they are deferring to some other source of authority in their lives. They're yielding to it. They're giving control to it. It's become supreme for them. And as a result, it's become contaminating, corrosive, and it's led them down this spiral staircase towards destruction. I'll give you a few examples. The quest for beauty. Who doesn't check themselves in the mirror before they walk out the door in the morning, right? The quest for beauty can turn into an eating disorder. The quest for comfort of wanting to numb the pain becomes an addiction. The quest for performance will turn you into a person who's either overinflated with pride or underinflated with self-pity, depending on what your performance is like that day. And sometimes... Both in the same day. <laughs> in the morning you'll wake up and be prideful because you knocked it out of the park the day before. In the evening you will be pitiful because you feel like you have not lived up to the report card that you received the day before. See, the quest for success becomes the destructive workaholism that destroys all of our relationships. The quest for popularity becomes a deference to the opinions of others which turns you into a people pleaser who doesn't know what they think because they let everyone else think for them. See, when we allow any of the authority to control our lives, we become shadows of the men and women we were created to be. And so if you look at all these examples I've given, you're like, well, those, those are psychological. Listen. Listen. They may, you may need counseling for these things, but listen, they are in as much spiritual as they are psychological in your life. It is yielding to some other Lord. It is yielding to some other authority in your life that you're giving ultimate say and saying, teach me. Teach me. Make me into the person I was created to be. And every other source will ultimately destroy you. So defer to Jesus for deliverance. Trust Him to teach you. Now before we close this morning, if I left you there, I, I think I would do you a disservice. And so we want to press a little further into what is going on in the text. Listen, the reason Jesus has the authority to deliver you, I want you to see this, is because He was delivered up for you. 
That's the reason he has the authority to deliver you. See, when Jesus casts out the unclean spirit in verse 24, I want you to notice what happens. The unclean spirit cries out in verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what does Jesus do? Jesus' immediate response to the recognition of his identity by this unclean spirit is to silence him. He says, be quiet and come out. Now this is a theme in Mark's gospel, right? When Jesus is recognized for who he is, when he heals and delivers, he commands people to be silent about his identity. See, what Jesus is aiming to avoid is growing clouds and the crowds in the public spectacle of this aspect of his ministry. Now, listen, as one other pastor said, as I listened to him this week, he said, listen, if this were me, if this were me, like I would say to the unclean spirit, I'd be like, who's your daddy, right? What's my name? Right? Go back and tell all your demon little buddies, your daddy's here. It's about to be a shakedown. Right? That's not how Jesus responds. That is not what he does. Right? I'd be chest bumping all the disciples and doing my best end zone dance. Like the Icky Shuffle. For those of you who may remember, I don't know if you remember Icky Woods back in the day, played for the Cincinnati Bengals. My best, but that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't draw undue attention. He doesn't market his powers on Facebook. He doesn't run an ad in the Capernaum Times or the Jerusalem Post. He doesn't sign endorsement deals. He evades the crowds. He commands silence. But why? Here's why I think he does that. Jesus does this. And it's not just a practical crowd control strategy. It's a spiritual theological necessity for Jesus. See, there were those in his day who would have assumed that if that the Messiah had arrived, Rome was about to be driven out, there was going to be a political kingdom that would now advance. And Jesus says, not that kind of king, not yet. Not yet. And if you look at the wording of verse 26, it says, And when the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And then you fast forward to the end of Mark's gospel. And in Mark chapter 15, you read about the death of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, we read, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Like the unclean spirit crying out with a loud voice, coming out. Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. Literally, the breath of Jesus, he was exhaling his spirit, giving up his spirit as he was crucified there upon the cross. See, what Jesus understood is that the only way to destroy the demons was to allow himself to be destroyed. What Jesus understood was the only way to silence these spirits was for him, he himself to be silenced. In death. See, the way to use his authority was not to parade it around or to leverage it or even to hang on to it, but was to give it up. Was to give it up. See, notice in Mark 15, unlike the demon, there's no convulsing, there's no struggling, there's no thrashing around. To disarm the spirits, he would relinquish his own spirit. And for Jesus, he wasn't involuntarily driven out. Like the unclean spirit, it was voluntarily given up. Another pastor, Stephen Oom, said, he said, these deliverances are healings and they're merely border skirmishes in preparation for the greater battle Jesus would fight. Not just to drive out a few demons or heal a few who were sick, but to utterly destroy the powers of sin and death itself by taking the death that we should have 
that should have been ours onto Himself. In giving up His Spirit, He becomes lifeless so that He might give life to us and make us whole. See, Jesus is able to deliver you from bondage and captivity and slavery to other masters, other lords, other sources of authority that have been corrosive in your life. Some of you right now are thinking about aspects of your life that have been destroyed by other sources of authority, other things that you have looked to and said, teach me, give me the information that I need to know how to become the person I was created to be. And as you look back over life and you see all of the corrosive effects of that in your life, I want you to know that you can look to Jesus this morning and find Him to be the one who has the authority and power to deliver you because He was delivered up for you. He disarmed all those forces forces that would oppress us by giving Himself for us. But it doesn't stop there. Because you may be saying, oh, well, that's great. So I looked at Jesus for deliverance and then what? And then you serve the One who has raised you. You find this in verses 29 and 31. We see Jesus heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law and in verse 31 it says he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them see the word lifted up is the same word that's used throughout the rest of mark's gospel for the resurrection so literally jesus when he comes in he touches her he takes her by the hand and he raises her he raises her heals her she experiences a type of resurrection and then notice what she does next she begins to serve him See, when Jesus delivers and heals and makes you whole, the response is not to say, thank you very much, now I'll be on my way. (laughs) But thank you very much, now I can go and do all the things that I wanted to do but couldn't do because I was was incapacitated and couldn't do them at the time. I was sick and in bed. So now I'm going to be able to go fulfill my bucket list, Jesus. Thank you. That's not the response. The response is whenever He touches and heals and raises She says, how may I serve the one who has given me life? See, it's overwhelming gratitude. says, I'm no longer a servant of beauty, of comfort, of performance, of possessions, or people's opinions. I'm forever bound to you, Jesus, because you delivered me. And notice the order. It's not that she gets up out of bed with a fever and stumbles around in the kitchen and makes him some food and brings it to the table and sets it and says, here you go. Let me serve you. And then Jesus says, now I'll deliver you. No. He says, let me heal and deliver you. And she says, how may I serve you? Listen, church, if you get that backwards, you've got something, but you don't have Christianity. Because over and over and over, the pattern is not come to Jesus and serve Him. Clean your life up. Make things right. Right? Get all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed and all your ducks in a row. And then come to Jesus and He'll deliver you. The pattern is this, is that you are a helpless mess. And that Jesus reaches down and He gives life. And He begins to reorder your life as you say, I trust you to teach me. I defer to you to deliver me because I don't have the power to deliver myself from everything that has been corrosive in my life. And now that you've raised me, I want to serve you. I want to honor you. I want to obey you. 
If you get it the other way around, what you have is moralism or legalism. You don't have Christianity. In 1738, Charles Wesley penned this famous hymn entitled, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? In one of the verses of that hymn, he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon aflamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth. And follow thee. Thank God you. You brought light. You brought life. You brought hope. You raised me up. And now my chains are gone. My heart is free to serve you. I rise. And I walk out of the jail cell. And I follow you. Wherever you would lead. I trust you to teach me. Is that you this morning church? Who have you been trusting to teach you? Who have you been deferring to for deliverance? What source of authority have you been looking to to say, if I could just get this right, then, then I could become who I was created to be. And Jesus says, no. Now trust me to teach you. Defer to me to deliver you. Because I was delivered for you. There is no other authority in this life that was delivered up for you. That's why every other one of them will enslave you. Only he can free you. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for the way that it clearly speaks into the realities of our life. And Father, I pray today... That we, as your people, for those who are in Christ today, who have at times, even as the old hymn says, that our hearts are prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. That even at times in our, in our, in our fears and in our insecurities, Father, in our pride, as we continue to wrestle with the flesh, we are prone to look back to those old masters, those old sources of authority, and to bend our knee to them. And when we do, Father, we find that our lives begin to erode. And if there are brothers and sisters in the room this morning who have done that, Father, I pray this morning they would no longer defer to those old masters, but they would defer to Your Son, that Your Spirit would Convict them and quicken them to look to Christ today and to find Him to be worthy of the name that He bears, that He is indeed their Creator King and He is the one who can teach them. He is the one who can teach them about their marriage. He is the one who can teach them about their relationships. He is the one who can teach them about the condition of their own heart. He is the one who can teach them about their finances and wealth. He is the one who can teach them about the, about the, about the realities of their lives. He can teach them with authority and He can bring freedom. Father, for those who have never crossed the line of faith, they've never, they've never met Your Son, 
Maybe they've been trying to serve and clean up their lives before they've come to Jesus. And so this morning, they're here this morning going, maybe I'm on the threshold ready to come into church and find Jesus and meet Him because I've, I've done the work. Father, I pray that you would show them that they are a helpless mess. God, that they cannot come to you with their hands full, but only with their hands empty. I don't bring you anything, but receive everything from you. Father, may they this morning see that your son was delivered for them. And because of that, he's able to deliver them from whatever unclean, oppressive spirit has been in their life. And Father, for those who experience your deliverance, Father, may we rise to serve you. May we serve you through your church. May we serve you in our community. And may we serve to advance your kingdom mission here locally and across the globe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.